Hey, welcome back to Crimes and Closets. This is Christy in my closet in St. Louis. And this is Beth in my closet in North Carolina. I'm in my closet with Jason Momoa. Ooh. <laughs> Save it. <laughs> Not really. That's a happy Monday. <laughs> I got to meet Jason Momoa yesterday while he was on tour promoting his new vodka. And he was at the Total Wine by my house. And I waited in line. And I saw him. And I took pictures with him. And it was fantastic. You but waited in, in line closet. for like two and a half hours. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, really, honestly, three because by the time we got in, like that right. was two and a half hours till the start of him being there, and then by the time we got in and got out, and it was totally worth it. To, yeah. Like ten selfies with him because and they're you good. Hand him your phone, and he just starts clicking. Like so, literally, he's like starts down low, and then he brings it all the way up, and like <laughs> just is clicking away. Oh, like, that's fun. <laughs> So, yeah. um, I saw your friend that was with you. She mm-hmm. posted and said he's a huge human. <laughs> well, she's a little human like you. So, yes. Compared to her, like when I looked at her pictures, I'm like, oh my gosh, you are really short. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so fun. Is he really big now? Yeah. I mean, he's 6'4. So, yeah, he's, and, and that's he's not like even a, tall to me. I mean, it's, it's decently tall. Clearly, like I, I mean, it's like I don't have like a short husband or anything, but he's bigger than him, and he's also like big. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he is. <laughs> so, anyway, I, I love it. Slide that in there real quick. <laughs> I was on the journey with you. Yes, <laughs> from afar, but getting the pictures, and I was yeah. highly enjoying myself. So I abandoned all of my responsibilities last minute, even though I have a ton. So now I, I have to do it all that. today. <laughs> I love that, but it's fine. Um, anyway, happy Monday. Sorry, we totally skipped that part too. Yeah. <laughs> happy Monday. How's it going? It's good. Yeah. Fall is in the air. It is. It is. My pool's closing this week. Boo. I know. Kind of sad, but there's not really that many days that are going to happen, I don't think. So yeah, I'm ready. And I'm days getting... on Monday, on Saturday. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Woohoo! Happy birthday, Beth! Whoop whoop! Let the party <laughs> ramp up. Yes, <laughs> I was going to say begin, but it's already no. begun. Like a it, month ago, yes. <laughs> it began a long time ago. It's just going to be like, you know, woohoo! Balls to the wall, shall we say? <laughs> I hope not, but <laughs> it's going to be a fun weekend. I'm super excited. So good, good. Yes, yeah, I'm excited for you. Thanks. Um, we don't know what's going other on with news, you. right? No, no other news. Just me. Okay. I'm the news. Me and Jason okay. Momoa. Okay. You and Jason. Well, uh-huh. there was actual real news that I saw on the Today Show, um, and I'm sure you probably saw it. But the whole Natalie Holloway stuff. Oh my gosh! I briefly did see this. Yes, he yeah. confessed. Right? He did confess. But I so I started like I mean I watched the whole like segment and whatever. But so he kidnapped her killed her threw her in the ocean is what happened no that's what he said yeah so um they said and he'll never be brought up on charges for it he is convicted of extorting extortion that's what he got convicted of and so in the plea deal for his extortion um charge he um admitted to the murder and because it was in Aruba, Aruba has a 12-year 
limit on charges, mm. and it's been 13. So he can't be brought up on charges <gasps> there, here. He's in Peru. He was in prison in Peru for a murder of another woman in 2010. So he's serving that sentence. And should he get out of jail early from that, then he will, will be brought out back to the United States to finish his sentence here if it's sooner than the 20 years that we gave him. Mm. He got like 30-something years, I think. Oh, no, he got a 28-year prison sentence for that other murder. Mm-hmm. And then he got 18 years while he was in prison for trafficking cocaine. What? <laughs> this guy's great. Um, So he can't go any more than 35 years in Peruvian prison. So he should be there for 35 years. But if okay. he does get, and he's got this 20-year sentence from the U.S. that's concurrent. So mm. should he get out early for some reason, they'll bring him back here to finish serving the 20 at least. But. Um, yeah, so he admitted to it and said that he she fought off his advances, need him in the groin, mm-hmm. and he was mad, and so he kicked her in the face and then bludgeoned her with this uh, um, one of those blocks, um, the not, cement block, cinder yeah, block, yeah, like a cinder block. There you go. I kept the oh only word that was coming gosh. to my head was cylinder, a cement block, and then walked into the ocean and just let her go. And so she'll never be found, essentially. Oh, but do not like that. I know. It's awful. Did, did they interview mom? They did. They have interviewed mom. And she is, I mean, as happy as you can be over, like, the resolution. She's just like, I know what happened to her. Like, there's a, he's been convicted, not of her death, but like she said something, I think at the sentencing or whatever, like, I just want you to know you're a killer and you should always remember you're a killer as you wake up in that cell or as the cell doors close every day on you. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So, I mean, he is clearly, he's killed somebody else. So another woman in a hotel room in 2010, the same year he was ex- trying to extort money because he was trying to get them to pay him for information oh. about her. Okay, gross. Like 2010. So that's what he was convicted of, was trying to extort money from them. Ugh. And and did he say he was by himself? Yeah. Because uh, yeah. he there was got like, into a car with a group of guys. Right. And they got, I think he said they got like dropped off sooner than the hotel because he wanted to walk with her because he thought it would give him more of a chance to be able to actually be with her. Mm-hmm. And she, yeah, so... Yeah, he didn't mention anything about anybody else, but I know there was like a group that had been arrested. And I think he was arrested like a second time, but always released because they didn't have enough like evidence against him. But, and he kept denying it for all these years. So, but gosh, I'm glad that they have answers, but man, they can't bring her home. Like, yeah, it's sad. It is sad. And it really, it is. You're right. But you know what? especially nowadays, like we we're seeing this, all of these old cases that have gone unsolved for so many years are going solved now. And like, you're going to get caught. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like you can't just be, you can't just murder somebody. Mm -hmm. Nobody Mm -hmm. is that smart. No, no. Yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to bring that up because I thought it was like, well, there's a resolution to this case that I'm sure people, everyone knows this case. Everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So. Yes. No. Thank you. Sad. So, anyway. Yeah. Well. 
I have some more sadness for you. you I know that. what I was going to say. I feel like that's just going to be the theme of the Monday. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the theme of every Monday, isn't it? Yeah. They're all sad. Sad. Sadly, yeah. it is. Yes. All right. Well, then are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. Okie dokie. Okie dokie. Okie Totally done that before. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is going to be a doozy of a case in terms of, well, a lot of what happens, but also just length of it. It's just long. So um, it's a lot of information. And it was suggested to us by one of our listeners. And she also happens to be a good friend of mine here in the Lou. Oh, nice. Yes. Um, Liza sent this in. And oh, she hello, lives, Liza. Yes. She lives in my neighborhood. And she is from um, where this case takes place. Like it's okay. her home. It's her hometown. Sorry. I didn't. It's Duluth, but it doesn't matter. Um, Duluth, Minnesota? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, and it's kind of pretty well known up there, but I don't know how truly well known it is in the general public, but it's definitely fascinating. So anyways, um, the murders that were committed in this, were committed in a mansion in Duluth. Murders. Murders. And it is a tourist attraction currently. And it is stated that 70% of the people that visit there don't even know about this story. So like 30% go because they know the story and they want to see the mansion. 70% are just going because it's the the, um, Glensheen mansion. Like it's just known it. It's a mansion. So it's that not was- a tourist attraction for no murders. It's for something no. else. No, the um actually the tourist the tour guides there were not allowed to even speak of the murders. Even if you got well, I mean, if you got questioned, they could answer briefly, but they weren't allowed to speak of it until like three years ago. Oh, because they were just like that's not what we want to be known for. We want to be known for it being this majestic mansion that was built so long ago and was donated and blah, blah, blah. Like, that's what we want to be known for. We don't want the murders to overshadow that. I don't think it's nice to not tell people that murders happened in a place you are. You could take things home with you. Come on. No, that freaks me out. <laughs> well, it's true. But anyway, but it does overshadow, like, good things that happened and that the person who bought this or – built this house like did and it's unfortunate because he did do some good things and it's like well now it's like hmm, well, it's just the glenshine murders <laughs> you know, okay so. i understand all right anyway okay so chester 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 <laughs> chester chester congdon i have a really hard time with this name by the way because i don't know why I, it's c-o-n-g-d-o-n and i for some reason i always want to say cogden I, mm-hmm. I want to leave that N out and it just, I don't know. So if I say it weird this whole time, then just ignore me because I literally typed and said and read it 15 different ways the whole time I was researching this. So Got it. anyway, Chester Congdon was born in 1853 in Rochester, New York. Ooh, also, let me just start by saying the amount of places that I'm connected to that this story is connected to is ridiculous. Okay. Like maybe not like personally been connected to like me but like people that I know are connected to so it's crazy but anyway okay so 1853 Rochester New York he attended Syracuse University where he met Clara 
Both of them graduated in 1875, and Clara went on to be a teacher in Ontario, and Chester moved to Chippewa Falls to teach, mm-hmm. okay. which is where my mother and father-in-law live. <clears throat> right. In 1879, the two moved to St. Paul, Minnesota, and he became the assistant to the U.S. attorney for Minnesota. Wow. Yes, and he became a very successful lawyer and invested in mining and became very wealthy. The two married in 1881 and over the years had a total of seven children. Um, he, I to, as I said, he became a really successful lawyer. I think he was even like in the House of Representatives for nine years, something like some high government kind of thing okay. um, for quite a few years. And he became the richest man in Minnesota. I don't know if that's like of all time or like just because of that time. At the period, time, probably. But yeah. yes. Um, they moved to Duluth in 1892 and purchased 14 acres of land along Lake Superior. Duluth is about 100 mile, 150 miles north of Minneapolis, for those of you who geographically need that. Chester started to have a house built. It would be a 39-room mansion. Now, this is the early Whoa. 1900s. <laughs> like that this is happening. So this is quite a deal. On water. On the lake, you said, right? On the lake, yes. Oh, nice. And at that time, typical lake houses would have been built for about $161,000, which is a lot of money at that time. Yeah. Glensheen Mansion cost $864,000, which translates to about $30 million right now. High rollers. Yes. That's how much money they had. (laughs) Okay. So- Over time and many years, a cottage for the gardener would be added, tennis courts, a bowling green, which by the way, I'm such an idiot. I had to look up what that meant. Mm -hmm. It's basically like a really nicely kept short lawn for bocce ball or lawn bowling. I was going to say they played bocce ball back then. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, this is like over bocce ball. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, but this is like over time. All of these things got added. So I I don't know when that was added. It could have been in 1985. I have no idea. But over the years, things like this were added. They had carriage houses with apartments over them, stables for horses, a boathouse with a pier, and four greenhouses on the property. Okay. It's quite an estate. I was going to say, it sounds lovely. I want to (laughs) go. Oh. I do. I want to go. I want to check it out. Okay, so Chester dies in 1916, and in his will, I believe it was a heart attack in like his 50s or 60s, um, in his will, he donates the mansion to the University of Minnesota of Duluth. Okay. But they can't take ownership of it until the death of the, his last child. So he okay. wanted to make sure that if there were any of his children that were living in it, they could stay there until they died, and then they can take over. All right. So they have since. So that's why now this is like a tourist attraction and it's part of this university. And got it. They have had like family reunions there where they've like rented it back from them and used it as if they still lived there, like as living quarters while they're there. Mm -hmm. But, anyways, okay. So Elizabeth Congdon was their last living child and lived in the home for a total of 72 years. Wow. She went to Vassar for a year, and after her father died, she moved back home to help with her mom and whatnot. She never married, although she was engaged once in the 1920s, but broke it off. And after that man died, he had left her some money, and I guess they must have had a really great relationship, and he just loved her truly because he left her money and said, go buy a ring like that commemorates our relationship. 
So she did, and she bought this. Isn't that sweet? Yeah. Um, Diamond and sapphire platinum dome ring, which had like 12 diamonds and 15 sapphires. It was apparently quite this ring. but I bet. And like well known by everyone that knew her because it was very recognizable, and she wore it all the time. So in her late 30s, Elizabeth decided that she wanted to adopt a child. Which I feel like in 1930, for a single woman to do that, like this just seems like for me unheard of. But anyway, mm-hmm. in 1932, she adopted a three-month-old baby from Greensboro, North Carolina. So here we are going oh. to North Carolina. <laughs> named Jacqueline, but Elizabeth changed her name to Marjorie. Okay. Then in 1935, she adopted her second daughter, Jennifer, from Chicago. She kept Jennifer's name. Growing up... Marjorie had her own kind of issues. She was somewhat of a, I guess, somewhat of a problem child. And likely it was a lot to do with her being adopted and just like having kind of just problems with her identity and knowing who she was and where she came from and whatnot. But she would argue with her mom a lot and was used to getting what she wanted because, I mean, they had a ton of money. And so it was like, Uh no, you can't have that. Okay, fine. I'll give in. Like, you can. (laughs) So you know, there was, it's kind of some similar, like, mother-daughter issues, I would imagine that all of us have. But anyways, um, Marjorie would just always find a way to push her mom or con her into giving her what she wanted. Okay. She, um, they had an interest, they had an interesting upbringing when I was looking, oh, First of all, I also read a book. So there will be a book that will be given away this week. It's called Will to Murder. And I got at basically everything from this book um, is very, very detailed. Um, they would go to school in Duluth in the fall and the spring. So they'd go to one elementary school or wherever they were. And then they, for the winter to get out of the cold, would go to the Arizona house that the family owned. Okay. And go to school in Arizona. <laughs> All right. That is Which interesting. Is, it is. It's very interesting. So like I said, it was like a home that their family owned. So Chester had properties because of all of his wealth, at, besides Glen Sheen. He had a winter home in Tucson, Swift Wifter, Swift Wifter, that's not the name of it. Swift okay. Water Farm, which is like <laughs> not far. It's still in Minnesota, I believe, on another lake, and property in Yakima, Washington. Okay. Or Yakima, I don't know how to say that. Elizabeth owned the house in Tucson and Swiftwater, and the estate owned Glen Sheen and Yakima. So those were like Oof. donated and whatever after his death, but she owned both outright. Um, because Marjorie was somewhat of a problem child, she was sent to a boarding school in Massachusetts, hoping it would change her behavior. All right. Things did not get any better. And in her junior year, they took her for an evaluation at a psychiatric treatment center in Topeka, Kansas, where she was diagnosed as a sociopath and ended up Yikes. staying at the clinic for a short time there. Yeah. It's a heck of a diagnosis. Yeah. She's an interesting person and she will forever be an interesting person. Um, After that, she attended a school in St. Louis for her senior year. Oh, the Lou. Totally all over the place here. Yeah. She met, Marjorie met her first husband, Dick, in St. Louis, and they were engaged when she was 19. They moved from St. Louis to Minnesota and they were married in 1951 in the Glen Sheen Mansion. There's Mm -hmm. pictures of it in the book. Um, They would also have seven children and would eventually divorce in 1970. 
Marjorie received money each year from her family's trust, which I believe to amounted to about $32,000 a year. So she would just get that Mm -hmm. just because, which I mean, that that was like my starting salary as a teacher in like 2000. So I can imagine that $32,000 a year goes pretty far back in 1970, (laughs) you know, like. Well, sure. And especially because like in all reality, she probably has like, you know, the pick of her family's property to live in and like her overhead's not going to be a lot because <laughs> she gets a lot of stuff for free, I would imagine, right. from her parents or mom. Yeah. Well, you would think, but I, from what I understand, she's just getting this $30,000 or is supposed to only get this $30,000. So anyway, Dick works hard to try and keep Marjorie reined in, but he's never really able to keep her fully under control. And I'm, and I say it, say that like very lightly. I don't, don't think that a man should keep their women under control. I mean this in terms of spending. She would spend and spend and spend and spend. And he's like, you're spending more than the $32,000 a year plus whatever I'm getting for working. And you need to not do that. Like, So he's trying to keep her reined in, but it's not happening. She just spends entirely too much money. A couple of her children took up figure skating and she would spend hundreds on lessons and ice time outfits, even buying like all the fabric in the store that her outfits were made of so that no one else could have that same oh, like, wow. pattern, or, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, that sounds a little Kardashian to me. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Marjorie was also obsessed with horses and would just buy them on a whim. Like she'd be like, yep, we've got to have this horse or or. Susie has to have this horse, like whatever, you know, like anyway, it's just quite a fascinating lifestyle that she had. After a while, Dick just couldn't take it anymore. And that's why they divorced. He's like, I'm done. I don't want to be underneath all this debt because even though, yes, the family has money, like really she's only supposed to get this amount every year. So, okay. So Marjorie would go into debt and just kind of try and make one phone call to mom and the trustees or mom would be like, okay, fine, we'll cover it because clearly we have the money to cover it. So why should you be in debt? So yes, she kind of had this problem, but they're, they're like not helping the situation by saying, Mm -hmm. we'll pay this off for you. They do try and say no a lot of the times, but then something happens and mom is like, okay, just cover it, you know? Mm. So She also did try and say no a couple of times, but basically Marjorie, like Elizabeth, her mom would try and say no, but Marjorie would just get like livid and then she would just do something extreme that would get it covered or whatever. Anyways, a few times the trustees said no and refused to pay the bills too on like behalf of Elizabeth. But again, then Marjorie just goes into some sort of rage and whatever. So Hmm. at one point it's even stated that Marjorie tried to poison her mom with homemade jam. Like she came home, was feeding her bread with, with this jam that she had made and her, like she wouldn't, she went to sleep and couldn't be woken up and her blood pressure had dropped. And then they finally got her to the doctor and she had this powerful sedative in her system that she did not have a prescription for. So yeah, Marjorie's not the, the best daughter. So Um, Another time, Marjorie forced her mom to co-sign for a loan for her, and it was believed that she physically actually forced her to sign that paperwork during one of her visits. So she wanted to buy property. Mom wouldn't just outright give her the money, so she was like, well, you're going to sign this, co-sign this loan for me. So she really might actually be a sociopath. Oh, no, she is. 
Okay. I just always get weary of diagnoses way back in the day because I feel like sometimes they kind of didn't know a whole lot about them and threw them around. But no, she sounds a little – No, she is. She is. She's she's worse, I think. Oh, great. Just wait. We haven't even gotten to the meat of this story yet. Okay. So Elizabeth is still living in the mansion and she has like many staff members around her. You know, the cook, the clean – well, I'm sure it was called the maid at the time. The cleaning staff, the nurses, whatnot. And the staff made it clear after that one time where she forced her to do the loan, she was, they were like, do not allow Marjorie to be alone with her mom again. Because just good. she's a frail old woman. She's getting taken advantage of. Like, we need to protect her now. I love okay. that. At the age of 71, Elizabeth suffered a stroke and was in a coma for 10 days. And she was paralyzed basically after that on her right side and practically deaf. She also has aphasia, which is the loss of her ability to speak and express ideas. And she would receive physical therapy daily in the home. And from what I understand, it was after that that Marjorie forced her to co-sign that loan. So, like, she's literally a frail, incapacitated Mm -hmm. woman, and her daughter is totally taking advantage of her. In 1975, Marjorie moves out to Colorado, where she had dreams of buying a ranch and a bunch of horses. It is here where she meets Roger Caldwell, and after just a couple of days, the two are living together, and three months later, they're married on March 10th, 1976. Oh, poor Roger. Yes, poor Roger. Roger gets the real tough end of the deal here. Marjorie, again, starts back with overspending. She wants to buy ranches, horses, and soon they're they're in major debt. Roger, like Dick earlier's, earlier tried to keep Marjorie reined in and under control, but she controlled everything. She was not, mm-hmm. she was not going to be controlled at all. She, she was like, wrote, this is my bus and I'm driving. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. She didn't care what anybody said and she was just going to do what she wanted to do. There's so many examples of the kind of money she spent in this book. And that's what would be interesting to all you people out there. But so many that I can't even tell you. Just know she spent enormous amounts of money on ridiculous things and she didn't have the money. And at some, and the trust would cover at some point and at sometimes, and sometimes they wouldn't. And so it was like, she was getting into major debt because they wouldn't cover everything. She would make stuff up like she had cancer. No. And she needed bills paid to get them to give her money because they weren't giving it to her to like buy frivolous things. She's like, well, then I should probably just tell you I have a deadly disease and you'll give me money yeah it anyway okay so oh another time she stole letterhead from her son's asthma doctor and wrote a letter stating that rick her her son needed a house built of certain material in a certain place and special things in there because that's how severe his asthma is mind you he had like moderate asthma he did not need all of these things she just uh-huh. was trying to get the money. And it was like, if you don't provide the money for this, then it's on you if something happens to Rick. Nothing was going to happen to Rick. He's fine. His asthma's under control. She's a scam artist. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Elizabeth, her mother, had her routines as she was older. And one of those was that every Friday, her chauffeur and nurse would accompany her to the lake house, that Swiftwater farm place. That was a couple of hours away. And then they would return on Sunday. On June 26th, 1977, Elizabeth arrived back at the mansion around 4.30, went to take a nap. When she woke up, she played cards for a little bit until dinner, and then her nurse would bring her to bed around 10 p.m. 
Velma Pietella was a nurse who had worked at Glensheen for seven years, but had recently retired. And someone had called her to fill in last minute. So she arrived at the mansion at 11 p.m. to be to do the night shift for Mm -hmm. Elizabeth. The night nurse would stay in the room across from Elizabeth's and typically she would lock up before going to bed. And the next morning, the maid, Hazel, came down to unlock the door so that the head nurse that comes in in the morning could walk in. And on that morning, June 27th, she noticed that the chain was off and the bolt was already unlocked. So she was like, I wonder if Velma forgot, you know, to do these things. Yes, she worked there for seven years, but she was retired. So maybe it was just like out of her realm of like the routine or whatever. So Mm -hmm. I guess maybe she forgot to lock up. The day nurse comes in, grabs Elizabeth's insulin as she was also diabetic and went upstairs to wake up Elizabeth and give her her medicine. As she was walking up the staircase, she saw two legs dangling on the landing between the first and second floors. And then she started noticing blood on the carpet as she kept going up and then saw Velma on the landing in a pool of blood. And she had no pulse and she looked like her jaw was broken when she got there. And there was a yikes near her body was a bloody candlestick. Oh, poor Velma. Yeah, no kidding, right? She just retired. She's about to enjoy life with her like husband of 45 years and comes in and fills in one day, which is never mentioned in this case, but I almost wonder like, was that on purpose? Did they have mm. like her fill? Did somebody have her fill in? I don't know. It's like never really tied in at all, but it is weird that like the one night she's there is when this happens, mm-hmm. you know? Anyway, mm-hmm. but anyways. So this day nurse runs into Elizabeth's room and when she gets there, the room is in disarray. There's like drawers out, but they're all kind of like the same, like they'll all be like six inches pulled out. So it's like kind of disarray, but also okay. disarray. Stage disarray. Exactly. Thank you. (laughs) So Elizabeth was lying on her back in her bed. Her legs were like bare because the sheets were pulled back. And then there was a pillow over her face. And when the nurse moved the pillow, she could see that Elizabeth's face was purple. Mm. She noticed on her arm that her gold watch and that infamous diamond sapphire ring were gone. And they immediately call 911. They also pretty quickly noticed that Velma's car is missing from the property, the car that she had driven there that night. And there was a broken window in the basement. And so there was kind of speculation that that's where the person entered, even though the front door was open. So don't know if that part was also staged or whatnot, like to show a break-in. I don't know. but mm-hmm. or, or did somebody have a key that could come in? <clears throat> I don't okay. know. Because um, there know. is... I, well, I mean, I don't actually know how the person got in, oh, okay. but there is a possibility that it was a person with a key. So um, there's speculation, too, because of, of anybody could actually fit through that broken glass door that was broken. Oh, right? okay. Could they fit? Could they get their arm around to, like, unlock? I don't know. There was lots of speculation about it. So um, police started collecting evidence from the home. They collected the bloody candlestick, a dented flashlight, batteries, a bloody shoe with the heel broken off, which I believe was Velma's shoe, mm. um, hairpins, earrings, broken eyeglasses, fragments of teeth that were found on the landing and the stairs. This oh is how gosh. badly she's beaten. That's terrible news. Yes. There was a total of 37 pieces of evidence on the staircase alone. 
which caused them to believe it was quite a struggle between mm-hmm. Velma and whoever this was. In Elizabeth's room, there was lots of jewelry missing, including the gold watch, that sa- diamond sapphire ring, double string of pearls, a cameo pin, which is funny because I was just talking to my mom about her cameo pin the other day. Mm-hmm. Those are Next- so beautiful, by the way. Aren't they? I just mm-hmm. told her that too. I'm like, I think they're so beautiful. I don't want a brooch because I don't wear brooches, but I would love a right. ring or something. Oh, I think that's nice. Are anyway, we'll see. I'll, t- I'll tell your husband. Next time, it's like any yeah. ideas. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny because we were in Italy, however many summers ago, and I was watching someone make cameos. You think that would have been the time that I would have bought one, but eh, I didn't. Anyways, uh, okay. So other necklaces, bracelets, a Tiffany pin, eighteen pairs of earrings, a charm bla- bracelet that had thirteen gold charms missing that all represented each one of her grandchildren. Oh, and this rare gold coin, not coin, a coin. It was like a mm-hmm. 1700 Byzantine coin or something like that. There was a print. Quite a robbery. I, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. There was a fingerprint lifted off the candlestick. There was no fingerprints in Elizabeth's room. Police spent three days searching and collecting evidence, but admittedly mistakes were made. This is the 70s. Attention to detail, contaminating the scene. All those things were not like even a, in the realm of thought for them and so like you know police cigarette butts are all over the scene one print that they did find in the bathroom would later be proven to be one of the police officers as he had leaned on the sink to like look at blood that was on the wall and so stuff things changed after this for them yeah um you always hear in the 70s when you we talk about police investigations about the dang cigarette butts i know universal every Mm -hmm. 70s homicide has police cigarette butts well, it's like they chain smoke the whole time they're investigating. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so weird. Um, they even went so far as to say that a police officer had tried to go through that window in the basement, and so when they brought the dogs out, they actually picked up on that police officer's scent and was following his path through the house, mm-hmm. as opposed to like mm. whoever actually went through it. But I also think nobody went through that window, and that's why he didn't pick up on any other scent. So, my own personal opinion here. Okay. Okay. So one of the staff members of the house said that the cook's dog had woken them up around 3 a.m. because it was barking but and did not stop barking until 5 a.m. So in everyone's head, they're assuming that maybe this person could have been in the house for two hours if it was barking nonstop. Mm. Police also looked at the logs that the nurses had kept, and they concluded that the two must have been killed between 11 p.m. and 2.30 in the morning which is kind of off on that 3 to 5 a.m. clearly because mm-hmm. if it was happening earlier, then why did the dog not wake up until 3 a.m. unless the dog woke up because the person was leaving? And well, just- if it was a big struggle and battle like they think it was with Velma, you would think that would have definitely woken the dog up. Right. So I don't know. There's some inconsistencies here that don't make sense, but well, we'll see what happens. Okay, so typically around then – in between those hours, Elizabeth would be like repositioned in her bed and given sedatives or pain meds and sometimes even warm milk. And all of this would always be logged in like the nurse's notebook, but there were no notes during this time, which is why they felt that this was probably the time at which they were both killed. At 8.30 a.m., the keys to Velma's car are found at the Minneapolis airport in a trash can of the short-term parking garage. Also, a parking pass stamped 635 was in that same garbage can. Minneapolis is about two and a half hours from Duluth. Mm. 
So that would mean 6.45 a.m. or p.m.? 6.35 a.m. A.m. Okay. Of the morning after the murders or like of the murders if you, you know, depending on the timing. But so they would have to have left around like the latest four o'clock in the morning to get there. Okay. So fits in that time frame of like if they were murdered, stuck around for a little bit and then left. But so they found prints in her car, but it was only hers. And they also found blood, but it was type O and Velma and Elizabeth both had type O. So they were like, well, it could be their blood, but could the killer also have had type O blood? Yeah, because it's like the most common blood type. Fun fact. Exactly. Exactly. And back then, they're not doing all this like DNA testing, and which yeah. is actually said in the end of the book. Like, had this been during that time, this thing would have been like open and shut. We would have figured it out. Done. Right. Anyway, the FBI becomes involved because her jewelry is worth over $50,000 at that time, which is a lot. And Elizabeth has 23 people in her will, and her living trust was worth $4,078,101. In the 70s. In the 70s. That's her living trust, with other trusts equaling $45,106,453. Oh, I really think they might be the richest people ever. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Because that's then. (laughs) Right. So people are getting – there's, like, people in this family that are just getting $40,000 a year from this trust, like, just because they're family. So Just, like, a, a random first cousin? Yeah, like, whoever – yeah, I think. I mean, grandkids. I, I don't know, but – and then she has 23 people specifically named in her will, which is probably all her kids, all her grandchildren, like, right. whatever. And then now, because she's dead, they're going to start getting a million dollars a year. So there's a lot of people to look into, like – some people were benefiting from this. Absolutely. I mean, granted, she was old. She was going to go soon anyway. So mm-hmm. there's also that thought, like, really, they couldn't wait just a couple more years for, like, just naturally this to happen. But anyway. Right. Okay. So the autopsies for it's both. terrible. Isn't it terrible? It's Which is why. To think about. It is. And that's why this is what this place is known for. And, like, it's overshadowing all the other things. Which I'm going to mention a couple things that, like, Chester – did later just to like put out some goodness okay. in the world but a palate cleanser yeah a palate but it cleanser. is awful to be a grandkid and be like man grandma is so rich when she dies i'm gonna be so rich but then it's like but don't die grammy right but exactly. also i want to be rich <laughs> it's like, yeah exactly yeah and i don't and i and it's funny because i not funny but i think that a lot of the people in the family just don't they don't talk about this at all like they just don't mm-hmm. want to be associated with any of it anymore sure Okay, so the autopsies for both women come back. Velma had 23 wounds to the head, crushed crushed cheekbones. Her skull was split into four quadrants. Her jaw was broken on both sides, and her teeth, several teeth were broken. Her cause of death was fractured skull and massive bleeding. Wow. No one noticed this fact until much later in the case, but her watch on her arm stopped at 250. People said, because no one noticed this until much later, they were like, well, how can you tell when it stopped? Was it 2.50 a.m.? Was it 2.50 p.m. the next day? Mm -hmm. But her autopsy was done at 2.30 p.m., so it had stopped at 2.50 a.m. Just Why would it have stopped? Did it get hit and it broke? Yeah, my guess is that it was broken because of the struggle. Yes. Or it could have been one of those motion watches, you know? 
Oh yeah, and like so you yeah. have to you have to be moving for it to work. And so That's when true. like, did they have those back in the seventies? I think they were only old timey watches. Oh really? Because now you don't want a watch to stop. You don't want to have to get up every morning and reset your watch because you took it off and sat it down. But back in the day, they used to do that. I say this because my dad had one of those watches. I had one of and those. And every watches. time he, oh, you did? I swear, so, my, my first watch I ever owned was like that. Well, that was probably in the eighties then. No, Emery gave it to me. Oh well, he got you a whole watch. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> or maybe, or maybe, but it never lost its time. So maybe there was something about oh. gravity. I don't know. But it was like a something. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Okay. Somebody knows <laughs> about on. this and yeah. needs to tell us. <laughs> Let's move on. Okay. So Elizabeth's autopsy was done later that day. She had bruises on her upper body and left arm. So she did struggle mm. a little bit. The skin on her nose was raw from struggling underneath the pillow. Oh. And her cause of death was listed as heart failure resulting from homicidal suffocation by a pillow. That's Some awful. Of these, like causes of death from like the way they word them from so long ago. Mm-hmm. You know, like now it's like asphyxiation, you know, or something. You know, it's like homicidal right. suffocation by a pillow. Very specific. I like that better. Yeah. Leaves no question. Nope. No question. When police initially called the women to inform uh, Jennifer and Marjorie, inform them of their mother's murder, Jennifer's initial reaction was to say, Marjorie did it. Mm-hmm. Same Z, Jennifer. Right? Police also spoke to def- several of Marjorie's children, and her oldest daughter, Suzanne, mentioned that she thought her mother could have something to do with it. At the time, Marjorie owed her own mother over a million dollars for bills that Elizabeth paid for, but said, you're going to pay me back for it, which I don't mm-hmm. know what she's going to pay her back with. She's not working. She's just getting her trust unless she was just not going to give her her trust money, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, showed her a lot oh. of money. Marjorie's ex-husband, Dick, even thought she could be involved based on his knowledge of her throughout their marriage. Also, not long after the mur- murder, Marjorie and Roger had made a claim that their home was robbed and collected insurance money for items that were missing. And they were about to be brought up on fraud charges. And so, because they had staged the whole thing. And so, hmm. oh, so Roger too? Long, yeah. Oh. So, did I, did I say not long after the murders? I meant not long before. So all that before, happened not long before. Yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad I said I worded that right. I thought I heard myself say it differently. And so it was like, well, maybe they were literally seriously in trouble. And they were like, we need this money now. Because Marjorie was like set to inherit like $8 million upon her mother's death. Okay. According to stuff in this book. I'm so. very sad to hear that Roger drank the Kool-Aid though. Gosh. Yeah, I mean, not that anybody should feel bad for Roger, but Marjorie was very controlling of everyone that she had in her life. And so I don't feel bad for him because he definitely did stuff that he shouldn't have done, but he was manipulated big time for his entire relationship. So Marjorie and Roger flew to Minnesota immediately. Police met with them as soon as they arrived to question them about where they were, what were they doing. Roger had a cut on his face that was explained away by saying a horse had kicked him in the face a few days earlier. Mm -hmm. It's very serious and I'm laughing about it. (laughs) Yes, he was kicked in the face by a horse. (laughs) Sounds like a concussion. (laughs) I know. I know. Did he go to the hospital for this? Because I'm pretty sure he should have. Anyway, 
and his hand was a bit swollen. So I don't know if he then chose to punch the horse to get him off. I don't know. But this was the story. So smelly. Smelly Roger. Marjorie and Roger stated that the morning of the murder, they had gone to the laundromat and Roger had left at some point to go get a soda from the 7-Eleven. And that was when she got the call about her mother. Marjorie and Roger stayed in Minnesota until about July 5th when they checked out of their hotel. The police were like already kind of radaring in on the, Is that a word? Radaring? Hmm. Okay. Honing in. Can I Honing. sidebar really quick? Yes. Why do they have to go to the laundromat? She buys horses, but she doesn't buy a washer and dryer. Okay. So they were living in a hotel in Colorado. Oh. They're right. not doing well. They, they are dire in debt. Straits. They're in dire okay. straits. They're about to be brought up on fraud charges. Like they are not living the lap of luxury, even though she's spending money as if she is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Got it. Yeah. It, got it. It's a All strange right. situation. All right, okay, so radaring in. Go on. Yes, they're radaring in. <laughs> so they go and they check in the, the, at the hotel. They're like, hey, can we get in there before y'all clean up? Like, we want to go check out. So they're fine. So in a box from a place that they had bought clothes for the funeral, they find a receipt from a store in Minneapolis for June 27th, 1977, which is that morning of the murders or after the murders, depending on how you look at it. Okay. They discover this receipt is from a store at the airport, and the clerks at the store remember selling a suede bag to a gentleman earlier that morning. He had another bag with him that he had tried to get fully inside this suede bag, but it didn't fit into it. So he ended up walking out with these two bags. So police are like, okay, this is enough. They've got a receipt from Minneapolis airport of that morning where the Mm -hmm. car was found right after they're murdered. Like this is enough for us to really dive in and go out to Colorado. Mm -hmm. So they make the trek out to Colorado to investigate and they enlist the help of the Colorado police as well. And one of the Congden, Cong, Cog, Cong, see, told you I can't do it. (laughs) Congden family members also hires a private investigator to look into Marjorie and Robert, Roger, and it's later discovered that this private investigator actually swindled him out of money and did not do all of the work that he stated in his report, which causes issues in trials later. Just to like kind of hold that in your head. So he mm. did he did do some investigating, but he didn't do everything that he said he did. So because he knew that he just could get money out of these people because they had all the money in the world back then. <clears throat> okay. Okay. So out in Colorado, Marjorie, Roger, and her 16-year-old son, which is Rick, the one with the asthma, as I stated, were living mm-hmm. in a hotel. So they speak to all the people that are working there, and it's found that Marjorie, on the morning of the murders, was at the hotel coffee shop at 6 a.m. It's stated by the waitress that she had not seen Roger. Hmm. At 1.45 that day, Roger called the front desk and left a message for Marjorie, 1.45 in the, in the afternoon. Left a message for Marjorie to come pick him up because he was ready. That's all it said. At the airport. Got it. Didn't say where. I know, I know. Marjorie's <laughs> just supposed to know. I'm okay, airport. <laughs> inferring. Right, exactly. Marjorie had run into several people during that day. And every time she spoke to somebody, it was like a different story as to where Roger was. Like, oh, I'm at mm-hmm. the laundromat. She ran into somebody at the laundromat. And supposedly Roger went to the laundromat and she was like, oh, yeah, he went out to get a soda or he had to run an errand or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so there was always a different reason. 
one was, oh, we went to go visit a friend in downtown. I dropped him off earlier. Or he took my son Rick to Boulder because I didn't want, because we heard of the news of grandma and I didn't want him to hear it on the news. And so he just took him out for the day for a hike or whatever. Like, anyways, it was all mm-hmm. these like random stories. Okay. Okay. It was also discovered that days before the murder, the two had pawned some items and Marjorie mentioned that she would be back to get them soon because she anticipated coming into some money. That's what she had told the pawn shop. Mm -hmm. The day of the murder, after she had gotten calls about it, Marjorie went out with a realtor and purchased two ranches the same day. So she hears her mom's dead and she's like, I'm out. I'm going to buy – I mean, she already had plans to meet with this realtor, so – Clearly that well, Yeah, shows because Roger had a plane ticket to Duluth. Premeditation here. So. Mm-hmm. When police spoke to one of their horse trainers, they told police that Marjorie had several times said that she wished her mom would just die already to help her financial situation. So, here we go. The month before the murder, Roger went to Minnesota to ask for a large sum of money to get them out of debt, and he was turned away. So... They kind of feel like that may have been the last straw. Like they tried to get that money Mm. and then they were like, okay, we're not getting it. Here we go. We're going to get another plan into motion. So, okay. So now they're searching the hotel that um, they are living in versus the hotel that they had in Minnesota. And they find an envelope addressed to Roger, mailed from Duluth early in the morning of – early in the morning that day of the murders. Well – it was after the murders, but it's still early in the morning. Right, 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 right. And it had a gold coin in it. A Byzantine oh. coin. <laughs> Why did he mail it? I don't know. And that's like a question that is said, like Roger has said, like, why would I mail that to me? Why wouldn't I just stick it in my pocket and take it? Or the suede bag that you bought at the airport, right. Roger. So that has been stated before. Like, what in the hell did you mur- like mail it for? But anyway, unless it was kind of like a – a way of showing like, well, she gave it to me. She sent it to me. I, so mm. it's, it wasn't missing because she sent it to me kind of thing. After but she anyway. was dead. Right. Okay. But there was like a million other things missing. So like that's the only thing that you're mailing? Anyway, whatever. <clears throat> so they also find a thumbprint on that envelope. And so they're like, well, now we need to compare this to like Roger and everybody else. So anyway, police then search the Caldwell's. Okay. No, sorry. They already are. Well, they're at the hotel. They're now in their rooms. And mm-hmm. inside, they find a wicker bag, which was the second bag that this person had when he purchased the suede bag. That was mm-hmm. the kind of bag he had, was a wicker bag. And okay, Elizabeth had a wicker bag set, like a larger one and a smaller one. And the smaller one was missing. Okay. And they're saying that it may have not been missing because they didn't take pictures of the like closet that it was missing in. But meanwhile, the chauffeur is like, well, I brought both of those bags in after that trip and I put them there. Like, I know they're missing. And it, well, one was missing. So anyways, one was a small wicker bag. And then they also found the suede bag that matched the one that the clerks had remembered selling the morning of the murders. And they find a pantyhose container. Remember pantyhose containers? <laughs> Oh my it's like egg gosh, shaped my head just flashed back so hard. Yeah, so <laughs> weird, right? Legs with two Gs, baby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they find a pantyhose container and inside it, it has a whole bunch of jewelry, including a watch, a gold watch, and a diamond sapphire ring. Oh, that one that was very distinct. Yes. Oh. 
police then they're like, we got to speak to Marjorie and Roger now again. So Marjorie tells the police left to do laundry in the morning, spoke to the front desk clerk, drove Roger downtown to see his attorney. So now this is story like number four or five about where Roger is. And then they show Marjorie the jewelry and she's like, oh yeah, I love my mom's watch and ring so much that I got identical ones and the rest of the jewelry is gifts that my mom gave me during like trips that I'd go out there and see her. I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. Sure. Liar, Marjorie. liar, peony hose on fire. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, well, speaking of fire, wait till you find out. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> Police discovered a safety deposit box as well, and inside it they find a will that was from Marjorie that was, like, dated, I don't know, like, maybe a week before all of this happened, that Roger would get the money from her trust upon her death, regardless of if they were divorced or not. And it would be, like, $2 million or something that he would get. So police are payment for the hired hit against her mom. Right? Exactly what police thought. They're like, this is a murder contract right here. Like it says it's a will, uh-huh. but it's a murder contract. On July 6th, police arrest Roger for the murder of Elizabeth and Velma because he's <laughs> the one that could not be accounted for that night before and the morning after. And it is assumed he carried out the murder, but police still thought Marjorie was the mastermind behind the whole thing. Right. On August 5th, the, the grand jury indicted him. Roger pled not guilty on February 27th, 1978. A change of venue was requested because it was such a high-profile case that they did not think he could get a fair trial in Duluth. Like, the community was, like, livid and in, like, up in arms about all this. So they move it to Brainerd, Minnesota, which is about two hours west of Duluth. Emory has family there. It's so oh. crazy. Like, all the places that, like, this thing goes and we have, like, people we know that live there. Or been there. Um, Prosecutors offered him a plea deal stating if he pled guilty, they would give him concurrent sentences and would be eligible for parole after 17 years. But he rejected it. (gasps) Because he would have to roll on his wifey? Well, that wasn't part part of of it yet. That wasn't part of it yet. That was just like, tell us you did it and we'll, we'll go easier on you. Because okay. they knew they were then also going to go after her. But, and, mm-hmm. and I mean, maybe they thought about that later, but it wasn't part of the deal. So they, the trial started May of 1978. Marjorie did not attend any of the trial and only visited huh. him twice in prison. And both times it was with an attorney present. How was she not arrested also Ooh, yet? We're getting there. <clears throat> well, they didn't oh, have right. any evidence against her at all. She I had mean, the jewelry. Well, the jewelry was in the hotel room. All right. You know, so like did did Roger bring it back and she didn't know and he she told he told her what he did for her and like, you know, so there's they got to they don't want to like risk a mistrial or something or not guilty plea and then or not guilty verdict and then they're like, "Oh well." Okay, yeah. so prosecution had a ton of circumstantial evidence cuz there was nothing mm-hmm. that like fully linked him. Also, I'll remind you really quick about the receipt for the bag purchase at the airport. He's He was not seen in Colorado that day either. So they have, that's what they basically have. He also does have blood type O. So he could have been one of the contributors to the blood found at the scene and in the car. Okay. It is argued that 30 million others do, but they're like, but 30 million other people don't have access to this property. So mm-hmm. let's like or narrow it in. Right. Exactly. Okay. They also have the thumbprint on the envelope, mm-hmm. which their expert found enough points to prove that it's Rogers. Mm-hmm. 
They have the murder contract slash will. They have the bags in the hotel room and the jewelry and the mountains of debt. And they also have the ladies at the store from the Minneapolis airport that identify Roger as being the one who bought the suede bag. So they've got a mountain of evidence against him. What about the fingerprint on the candlestick holder? Did anything ever happen It wasn't enough. From what I remember, it wasn't enough to get any kind of actual, like the only good print they had was the one from the envelope. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Like nothing else was like usable essentially. Okay. And the one from the bathroom that ended up being the police officers. (laughs) Right. Okay. So, so prosecution offers him one more time concurrent sentences if he would plead guilty and this time give up his wife's involvement. And he again declined. All right. Roger was found guilty of the murders and sentenced to two life sentences in prison. Hmm. The morning after his sentencing, they arrest Marjorie for the murder and conspiracy to murder Velma and her mother, Elizabeth. Okay. Marjorie's trial was a bit more dramatic. They asked for a change of venue, and at first it was denied, but then it was appealed, and it was granted, and her child was moved to Hastings, Minnesota, which is about two hour, two and a half hours south, like even further south than Minneapolis. Marjorie was not a quiet person. She was very loud and boisterous and in court actually complained one time about how her inheritance tax dollars are actually paying to prosecute her. Oh, Oh my gosh. The horror of it. Um, One day during trial, she actually brought a birthday cake for like somebody. I don't know if it was an attorney, the bailiff or the judge or somebody, but like literally brought like she was just playing it up. Where did she get the cake? Well, I don't know that she was in jail this time like oh i think God, she, she was baked out to make cake yeah lord help i hope they didn't need it it probably right. had strychnine in it well it made people think she was a lovely older woman look at how nice and lovely she is she couldn't kill her mother she's making a birthday cake for somebody it's all of this woman yeah prosecution presented much of the same evidence they did in roger's trial basically because that's all they had they didn't have anything like specific tying her except that like well she must have mastermind this whole thing Mm-hmm. They did change up the order in which they introduced things just to keep the defense on their toes. They called 112 witnesses to testify. The defense called half of that. One of the witnesses that the defense called was the coffee shop waitress from Colorado who initially stated she never saw Roger that day. Well, now her story has changed. And she's like, oh, I think I did see him that morning. Mm. So... <clears throat> The defense also fought the fact that the ladies from the store in the Minneapolis airport that identified Roger as the one being buying that bag, they were like, we can't believe them because initially they couldn't even give a great description and they were shown pictures and they never identified him in pictures. But then all of a sudden they're identifying him because now they've seen news stories about him and seen him in the public. So now they're just saying it's him because they're like, well, it must be him. Yeah. So they're fighting that part. In fairness, eyewitnesses are well, yes, problematic in general. <laughs> they are. They are. Mm-hmm. So I understand why they would, like, go after that. That's totally fine. Um, the private investigator that I mentioned earlier was called to the stand, and he answered some questions but pled the fifth for a lot of it because he would be admitting defrauding the family if he had oh. actually told truthful, which is why it caused problems in the trial because – He was just like, I plead the fifth, I plead the fifth, I plead the fifth. And it wasn't helpful at all. But it also caused problems because they actually went as far as to say he could have planted some of the evidence, like the jewelry and the wicker bag, because he 
did happen to be there when they found that stuff. And so they're like, well, you're working for the family. You happen to be there. Then you defrauded them. Maybe you planted stuff for them. Mm-hmm. So this is why it caused issues in the trial. I'm upset. This is not looking good. No, it is not looking good. Oh, no. <clears throat> so the defense had their own expert to rebuke the fingerprint. Clearly, they're going to have an expert that says, no, it's not Rogers when prosecution has one that does. So the prosecution called the big guns in and got an FBI fingerprint analyst from D.C. to come in. He examined the two prints and determined it was not Rogers. Uh-oh. So, oh no for the prosecution because now they have to tell the defense about this and now the defense can use their witness that they paid for to testify and they did. Oh. When the case was finally rested in July of 1978, the jury deliberated for two days and came back with verdicts of not guilty for murder and not guilty for conspiracy to murder. Wow. I would have thought the conspiracy based on that contra- like will thing. Yep. Wow. A few months later, Marjorie became involved with another man while Roger was still in prison and she was still married with to him. It was old friends of hers from when the children were ice skating and his wife had been really good friends with her and they were still married. His wife was suspicious that they were having an affair, but they just kind of called her crazy and whatnot. And soon after she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and went into a nursing home. And so like most of the time it was kind of like, oh, it's her Alzheimer's. She's not remembering things correctly. Like, no, this is, we're not having an affair, but they were. The Hmm. day she went into the nursing home, she was healthy, except for the Alzheimer's. I mean, physically she was healthy. The Uh next day she goes into a coma and a week later she died. It came out that Marjorie had been in and fed her something from baby food jars that she had made. And that's when she went into a coma and never came out of it. So people had suspicions. Hello. Also, that woman's daughter on her chart had noticed, call her daughter Marjorie in case of an emergency. And her name was had been scratched out. She was <gasps> like, Marjorie's not her daughter. <laughs> I am. Did they not do an autopsy and test to see if she had anything in her system? You know... I, you know what? I'm sorry. That's awful that I don't remember, but I don't, I don't think so. Well, if it was a week later, it might have not have been in her system still, but like, sheesh. Right. Yeah. I, nothing came of it. That's basically the gist of it. Nothing came of like them saying that Marjorie did it, but it was suspicious. Woman is a serial killer. Yeah. Roger's attorneys attempted a few times to get a new trial because of all the evidence that was brought up in Marjorie's trial, and it was denied twice. And in 1981, Marjorie asked him for a divorce, but he refused to give it to her. (laughs) She wanted to marry Wally, which was the other man. And she, so she went to and applied for a license under her previous married name, Leroy, in North Dakota. And so it wasn't flagged. And so she got a, apparently got a marriage license. I didn't find out later on that all of it was like fake and it wasn't real. But then I Mm -hmm. think she did marry him really. Anyway, it's weird. So meanwhile, Marjorie's children had filed a lawsuit against her also to try and keep her from getting her inheritance because Minnesota law prevents someone from gaining from an estate if they were thought to have been involved in the death of the person. And you don't have to be convicted. They just have to prove enough evidence in a civil suit to show that she didn't get any money. And it's a lot easier to prove things in a civil suit than a criminal one. So that's good. Yes. So Minnesota Supreme Court granted their request and allowed the kids to sue her. And during this time, the waitress recants again and said Mm. she never saw Roger that morning. 
All right, we just need to throw her out at this point, right? They say that she was just nervous and whatever, blah, blah, blah. So the children end up settling the suit, and Marjorie only gets $1.5 million and some interest from the children's trust. And then the rest of the millions would be split between her seven children. So she still mm-hmm. gets some money, but not as what she thought she was going to get. Okay. In 1982, the Supreme Court overturned Roger's conviction and granted him a retrial because of the fingerprint testimony in Marjorie's trial. Because that was really the only, like, concrete mm-hmm. like, evidence against him. Mm-hmm. So prosecutors are devastated. They're like, crap. We've already got, like, Marjorie was not guilty. So we've got double jeopardy in play here. Can never try her again. Now yeah. there's a chance we might lose this one. So he's out and living with a friend slash old attorney. He maintained his innocence the whole time. Tried to fit into society, but it was so hard because he was just notorious. This case was notorious, so he's, like, t- always tied to it. He would go back to drinking and not able, being not able to hold down a job. Prosecutors had many discussions and ultimately came to the conclusion that they did not want to chance getting a not guilty verdict the second time around. And so they offer him a plea deal. They said, plead guilty to two counts of second-degree murder, and they'll give him two concurrent 111-month sentences, assuming he would get credit for good behavior because he had already proven to be a model prisoner. He would have seven – he would get – it would go down to 74 months, and he had already served 62, so he'd have 12 months left to serve. So one year. Okay. Roger was like, okay, I will plead guilty, but I do not want to serve another year in jail. Prosecution's like, fine. So he ends up pleading guilty, giving a statement. Basically, his statement is like regurgitating what the prosecution had assumed had happened that whole time. They did ask him to implicate Marjorie because they were they were like, she's safe. No matter what you say, we can't go after her. So just tell us what happened. And he never said it. He's like, nope, she wasn't involved. A few years later, Roger would complete suicide in 1988. He left two letters, one of which was for his kids, and he maintained that he did not kill those two girls. Hmm. I don't believe him, but he maintained his innocence, like, literally till his death. Marjorie goes on to live with Wally Hagen. The two moved to Arizona and at one point sold a house that they had out there to some friends, and the night they turned over the rest of the keys, the house burnt down. Fire! All right. The new owners had an insurance policy that they had extended for two weeks after the closing that the money would go to the Marjorie and Wally. Why? I don't know how or why you would do that, but like they had had the insurance policy prior to closing and then for the two weeks after anything would go to them, which is weird to me. Anyway. Yeah. So they, um, they have this money that they're getting and Marjorie gets arrested for arson because police end up finding a key in their home after the fact. They had said they'd given all the keys, but they really did have one more. And uh-huh. there's two spots where fires were started inside the house. It was obvious it was arson. So she gets arrested uh-huh. for arson. She's also arrested for bigamy because it comes out that she's not actually divorced Roger. <laughs> but North Dakota declines to press charges, but says if she ever steps foot in their state that they will arrest her. Wait, wait. Wasn't Roger deceased at this point? Yes, but she married Wally before. Oh, okay, okay. 
So in December of 1983, she goes to trial, is found guilty of arson and defrauding an insurer, and she gets two and a half years in jail and a $10,000 fine. She's out of prison while the appeal process happens. So for two years, she's out of prison, even though she gets a two and a half year sentence. Finally goes to jail in January of 1985. Marjorie gets released in October of 1986 and moves to Queen Valley, Arizona. I don't know if you know the connection here, but Queen Valley is a really tiny, unincorporated town in Superstition Mountains. They have a population of about 700 and maybe that many in snowbirds every year as well. Mm -hmm. Two tiny restaurants, one gas station, a nine-hole golf course, only two ways in and out of this little town. It's like off this little highway. It's often mistaken for a bigger city called Queen Creek. And my mother and father-in-law live there half the year. Oh my gosh, really? They're the snowbirds. Yes. And they randomly found this place also. Like when they went out to Arizona to look for places, they like happened to like, oh, what's this? As they're driving down the highway. And they're like, no one knows it's there. So the fact that this woman actually like made it there and moved there. And I talked to my father-in-law yesterday and she said, he's like, we just had a whole conversation with people about how she lived there, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh my gosh. No way. Anyway. Okay. My mother and father didn't live there until the 90s. I think they moved in late 90s, early 2000s. Anyway, so she gets in trouble, ends up moving out of Queen Valley. She's not there very long. I was like, did any fires happen when she was there? (laughs) Or murders. (laughs) Yeah. She gets in trouble for check fraud in 1989 and a rash of fires that had happened around her wherever she was living at that time. Uh And in December of 1989, they moved to Ajo, Arizona. Ajo, A-J-O. More fires arise there that she has ties to. In 1991, she attempts to set a neighbor's house on fire and a deputy saw her lighting something near the home. So they chase her and arrest her. My (laughs) gosh. And she spent eight months in jail. All during this time, Wally had been like wheelchair bound and dependent on her. But while she's in jail, he suddenly gets better and is fine and is not in a wheelchair. So... Clearly, there's a suspicion that she's like drugging him. At, you know, why was she him. setting her neighbor's house on fire? I don't know. I don't know what this because most of the time she did arson because it benefited her in some way yeah. for insurance. And I so I don't know. I don't know that. Okay. Part. I, and obviously, right now at this point, this is going so long that I'm now like just like fast forwarding through all the things that she's done. <laughs> okay. So, in 1992, she goes to trial for the arson and is found guilty. She's given 24 hours to get her affairs in order with Wally. And during those hours, Wally dies. Oh, my gosh. Right? Right? People are suspicious, and she's brought up on charges on Wally's death. But they were dropped because Marjorie had him cremated really quickly, and so they couldn't prove it. She had several other fraud charges over the years, and she pled no contest to them, and she was sentenced to 15 years in prison in a maximum security prison in Goodyear, Arizona, even though she was a 60-year-old woman, because they were like, this lady is that crazy. Uh (laughs) While she's in prison, she somehow buys a house with the help of her attorney. I am not okay. (laughs) No. I tell you, this was like so fascinating. She was up for parole in 2001, and she was denied a few times. Finally, she's released in January on January 5th, 2004. She befriends an elderly man while living in the same apartments as he does. She convinces him to open a joint checking account, and when he dies, which I think was the natural oh causes, gosh. but it's probably not 
natural causes. She keeps cashing checks that he's being sent. And she's arrested in March of 2007 for forgery and theft and computer fraud. Because if you're doing this like online now, it's now computer fraud. Oh, okay. Health issues delay her trial, but she finally pleads guilty in 2008. Her sentence is delayed due to health issues. And she's ultimately sentenced to three years of strict and closely monitored probation. So she doesn't go to jail. It is stated that she still receives $50,000 a year from her inheritance and is still no way. in Arizona. She would be 91 at this point. The last article I read was from 2022 saying she was still alive. So I'm just assuming she's still alive and out there. And that is the Glen Sheen murders. All right. Can I <laughs> ask a question that I feel like is the elephant no. in the room? <laughs> yes. Who is Glen Sheen? Well, it's just the name. Actually, that's funny because I don't know the reason behind the name. You think I would have looked that up? Because there was so many other, other name, like other things going on in this case that, like, I literally have no idea why it was called Glensheen. It's the Glensheen Mansion. I don't know if that has. I can try and look it up right now. But it might be named after a person that's like affiliated with the school, like a founding father or whatever of the school that now owns it or something and they just renamed it so it wouldn't have the stigma yeah but i almost i have been on high alert for somebody named glenn for somebody to marry somebody named glenn this whole entire time oh i know happened i know because last (laughs) week when i told you the name you wrote down glenn sheen and i did not correct you that it wasn't a name (laughs) because i was like i don't want her to figure this out I, so I don't I don't know. I don't know. Um, it says that they built Glensheen. So I feel like that was the name of okay. it from the beginning, but I don't know where it came from. I haven't found where it came from. All right. I will say, I do want to mention, like I said, a couple things that get overshadowed. So Chester did a lot of really good things, one of which was he, because of all the land he had bought and just the money he had, he actually donated money to the city of Duluth to buy this patch of land along Lake Superior right near her, his mansion. And he did it with the condition that they would never develop it to keep its beauty. And so there's just this like scenic highway that that goes up that way. Mm -hmm. The other thing he did was there's a park. uh, There's a Creek called Tisher Creek and there's a, now a park named Congdon park that has some of the most pristine hiking trails in Duluth and beautiful bridges and stunning waterfalls. And it was developed in 1908 on land donated by Chester Congdon, who was then building his Glensheen estate. And he paid for the land and its development on the condition that the city would stop using the creek as an open sewer. So like he just wanted to keep it like beautify and like keep Mm -hmm. the beauty of the area and was like using his money to do that. And it was like, all these like great things. And there was other things I think that he's done too, but like, like, and then murders happen in his giant, beautiful mansion. And that's all people want to talk about, about it. So yeah. Anyway. Okay. I have one more question unrelated yes. a little bit, but has your friend Liza ever been there? Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And she actually was talking about how she was like, they were going to, cause they go to Duluth like every summer. So they go, or they go home every summer to her hometown. And, um, she had this place that was like she rented last minute and because they didn't know if they were going to take it for the weekend and they had decided not to, but there was like a small glimmer of a chance. She was like, I should just bring Christy there so she could go see it because she had already told me about this and I had already said I started in, like 
it, um, researching and whatever. And I was like, oh my gosh, I totally 100% would go. I'll go. Yeah. <laughs> so now I really want to go now. Yeah. Well, anyway, just be careful on those stairs. Okay. Because that's some trauma that happened there. I don't know. It just freaks yeah. me out. Okay. Um, this woman is bananas. And she really, had she been convicted of everything that she actually did, she would be one of the pro- most prolific criminals we've ever covered I ever. Think. Yeah. She I just think. never got convicted of anything. No. Except I mean, arson. she did. Yeah. Arson and fraud. Like, yeah. ended up pleading guilty to it. But it's like, she does not stop. No. I mean, this woman's 91. She's probably frauding people now. Oh my gosh, you think? I don't know. I don't know. But she didn't seem to stop no matter how old she got. So, and all these men that just kept dropping like flies around her. I mean, I know she didn't have anything to do with Roger's death, like physically, because he completed suicide. But yeah, that's your fault. You totally. There was a couple times that they thought though that she did drug him too, because oh. there was like mention in the book about how like he had gone to the hospital for certain things and sometimes just seemed really out of it, and so like they kind of felt like it was a way of controlling him. So she may have tried, but and let me mention this book. It is a lot. It's a lot to get through, but it's written by this one lady who I don't know who she is, but with the help of the prosecutor and the investigator of this. So there's oh. like a lot of really like lots of detail. And it, mm-hmm. so, okay come so, get it guys yeah come get it yeah she's been reading it for a really long time i can't yes. confirm <laughs> it's a big book 407 pages long page big pages with really tiny words i actually yes. had to bring out reading glasses to read this one it's like every couple of days she's like i'm still reading i'm mm-hmm. still reading and then like two weeks go by and three weeks go by she's still reading yeah it was weeks it was definitely weeks. it was no. we have those cases sometimes that take us like a cold month to or two even to like finish mm-hmm. up because there's just so much information and what do you what do you add what do you leave out you know yeah right it's hard yeah you did a good job oh thank you I'm just glad it's done I mean I'm <laughs> so glad that she um suggested it because it's definitely like amazing all of the mm-hmm. things that happened but it was a lot definitely. yeah it's a ride yeah Ooh, you know, sometimes we talk about, um, we're so happy it's October. This has been a very heavy October, I think. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, in a good way, in like a great way. But yeah, well, thank you so much for diving in to that one. Yeah, you're welcome. Happy Monday. How <laughs> happy many, Monday. How many uh, sittings did it take you guys to listen to this? Like I know, on right? On the way to work and on the way home and while yeah. you're making dinner. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then you're done. Um, so definitely come find us on social media and let us know what you guys think about that. And also there's going to be a book that Christy will post. Um, there's lots of books going on, which is really mm-hmm. fun. So come and you have to follow us on uh, Instagram or Facebook if you want to get a chance at winning the book. It's super easy to like enter. So do that. Um, I just gave one away last week too. Yes. Yeah, I just gave, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, come do that. It's really fun. And come find us on Patreon if you like what you hear. We have a ton of fun stuff going on over there. And it gets real crimey and real crazy and real chit-chatty. So we would appreciate it if you guys want to come and check that out. And we love you very much. Have a great week. And always remember, the world is scary. People suck. Hide in your closet.
You win. 